0: On Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we take a cinematic excursion through the work of groundbreaking Filipino character actor Vic Diaz. Vic Diaz. On this episode, we're looking at Sergio H. Santiago's Live by the Fist from 1993, starring Jerry Trimple, George Takei, what? Ted Markland, Laura <laughs> Albert, and of course, Vic Diaz as Warden Acosta. I'm Liam O'Donnell, and with me as always is Grease Monkey, Doug Tilly. Doug, how are you doing? Liam, I'm doing all right,
1: actually. I've uh, recently returned to working a pretty full-time schedule uh, which is a big adjustment because I was one of those uh, people who while um, we were in the depth and the murk of the uh, worldwide epidemic which of course is still ongoing but certainly when people were taking it a little more seriously that I was like well I don't want to encounter people so my wife and I basically stayed in our apartment and we did the stuff we were supposed to do and we masked up and we didn't encounter people and now even though Um, there's still a lot of risk involved. Now I'm in auditoriums full of people every single day. And it's worrisome, But uh, and it doesn't feel normal, not even a little bit, but at the very least, I feel a little bit more productive than I was before. Sure, sure. So it's a real weird mix of feelings internally, where it's just like, I'm going out and working like I'm supposed to be doing, but I'm also putting myself and my family at risk at the same time. Uh, So it's not a great feeling, while still having weird kind of, positive elements to it so what i should say when you ask me how i'm doing liam uh mixed is how i'm feeling (laughs) i think
0: that's understandable um (laughs) i i kind of understand honestly because i haven't quite returned to that level of engagement but a couple times i've tried to like venture out into the world for like events and stuff and it's weird about which events i'm like oh wow this is this feels good maybe i'm ready to be around people again and then i'll go to something else and be like no, I don't like this. I don't I don't like being here. So, yeah. you know, I'm still adjusting to the world. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners are as well. Um, today we're going to be talking about this Live by the Fist movie. And, Doug, you know this, but I, I think our listeners might not know. Um, I don't do any research before we watch these movies. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not true of my other podcasts. Sometimes I'll do a bunch of research beforehand, even when picking the movie. Uh, but, you know, I... I, I A lot of times I want to go in especially if it's a movie I've seen before I might want to read a bunch of stuff about the film prior Mm -hmm. to watching it but for our podcast I like to not do that and so uh I'll be honest also you're also you're too lazy to do that (laughs) I mean no that's not always true because I definitely feel like there's a lot of work involved with uh our Jodowowski podcast because I let's be honest (laughs) take that more seriously because there's someone else here and I don't want to let her down Liam Liam how much how much of that work is split between you and
1: me on that particular podcast as well.
0: Oh, sure, sure, sure. No, I'm I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is I don't look at anything prior to a lot of the movies because I right. just want to go in. And then afterwards, I may or may not, again, depending on how lazy I'm feeling, do some work. And I have done it sometimes. Other times I'm like, Doug will do it. I don't need to do it. Doug will do it.
1: Oh, oh um, great. What a position I'm in here. <laughs> but I, understand. I mean, I do understand. This is supposed to be a
0: low-stress
1: yes, environment. Yes, There are podcasts that we're doing that are meant to be a little bit more polished. This one is supposed to be a little bit more relaxed. And frankly, um, there's a lot of films – in this
0: that we're going to be covering and have covered on this show
1: that there isn't that much information about out- right
0: but just one quick imdb and i would not have had the shock of my life when one mr george takei showed up in this movie i uh, i just was like wait what is that i for half a second doug i thought Oh no, I'm being racist because this couldn't possibly be him. I just see a man who reminds me of him and I think, Oh, that's, that's my man from Star Trek. And, but he wouldn't be in this movie. There's just not a, there's just no way. And then I looked it up mid movie and was like, Nope, that's him. Okay. All right. He's in this movie. And I bring all that up not just because uh, I think anyone listening to this who hasn't seen the movie would also be surprised, but I wanted to talk before we got into the movie proper about this phenomenon. When you are watching a movie that you expect to be a certain way and someone shows up in the film that just disrupts your expectations, the terror, yes, thank you, Doug – I wanted to know: Have you had that experience where you're? I mean, I will say most commonly it would be a B movie, but maybe not sure. exclusively. But something that you you went in with an expectation and someone showed up, like George Takei in a in a in a, <laughs> a Filipino exploitation film. They showed up and suddenly you were weren't sure where you were exactly.
1: You know, it doesn't happen that often anymore because, uh, unlike you, I almost always do a little research on a movie before I'm watching it. Even oh, though I'm just interesting, doing it interesting. Casually, like I'll usually pop over to the IMDb, see some of the people involved. And, you know, part of it these days is because we have so much choice in regards to what we're going to watch. I mean, I think both of us have lists that are hundreds and hundreds of films long, of, movie, uh, long, of movies that we have available to us that we want to watch that we just haven't made time to do it yet, right? Because we usually have other commitments or we're watching something that's newer or something like that. So it isn't often that a surprise like that is likely to happen but it doesn't mean that it never happens i will say that one of the things i like about late 80s early 90s action movies is that they tend to have these i don't want to generalize too much they tend to have these stiff actors who are really martial artists real life martial artists to some extent who are not very good at acting so they have to surround them with more competent actors and that usually means the appearance of a lot of really talented and recognizable faces in supporting roles like in uh The Steven Seagal movie, Marked for Death, Keith David has a really major kind of supporting uh, role in that movie, right? And Keith David, of course, is maybe the most reliable actor in Hollywood. Or in Above the Law, Pam Greer and Henry Silva are in that movie. And I just always love when when faces like that pop up, who are obviously so much more talented (laughs) in some ways than the stars of the movie, like uh, Emmett Walsh in uh, Missing in Action, which is a different example because maybe not everyone... Uh, It gets as delighted as I do when Emmett Walsh shows up. But I mean, I just love it when you see these, um, in some ways, and sometimes quirky, but really just very reliable performers come in and they are propping up this lead that they know is there for a specific reason. And that reason is not acting so i mean in this case
0: the george decay thing wasn't a huge surprise to me i think we may have even mentioned it liam at the end of our most recent episode i I missed i mean there's such a gap between some of these episodes doug i wouldn't have remembered anything
1: i I mean and understandably so but there is also in my mind i'm thinking even knowing that he's going to be in there george takei in this action movie like what kind of fucking role is he gonna play what how is he gonna be right and then you see it in the movie it's like oh okay i guess that makes some semblance of sense and now what kind of performance does he give and honestly george takei i think is pretty good in the movie he's probably Agreed. probably well he's probably in the top two <laughs> finest actors <that> appear <laughs> in the whole thing though just to give one more example of the thing you're you're, you're uh you're talking about uh before you I, i'm sure you have a few examples as well the one that always springs to mind is the old monster movie, Revenge of the Creature, the third in The Creature from the Black Lagoon series. And in that movie, it features the very first acting appearance of Clint Eastwood in this very small supporting role. Sure, right, and every time right. he, every time I see that movie, I forget that Clint Eastwood's going to be in it. And then he shows up and is like, holy fuck, it's Clint Eastwood. What's he doing there? Uh, so... It can still happen. Uh, I think it's usually, it's a little bit more likely in that sort of thing where it's an early appearance. Like there's a bunch of 70s movies where Harrison Ford just shows up for a minute um, and and it's just like, oh right, it's kind of like a before they were famous thing. Though I think my preference runs more towards the character actors helping bring legitimacy to
0: not great acting action status. Right. For me, the, the one that came to mind, I have to give a little context for because I don't think it would be as surprising to a lot of people. And that context is that Um, when I was a kid, there was certain TV I watched somewhat religiously because of the time it was on, right? So, Mm -hmm. stuff that was on TV right before dinner time, you know, there were no cartoons on, so I might put on a sitcom or, or something like that. And one of the sitcoms that was in syndication that I watched just before dinner religiously was Night Court. Sure, Night Court was a big part of my life, and uh, and so, uh, though he shows up in in other movies that are more well-known that might be more important in some ways, the first time this happened to me was uh, uh, Richard Mull in Dungeon Master. (laughs) And I was just like, wait. Bull is in this, you know? And now, to be fair, someone might point out, well, what about Richard Mull in House? And I would point out that uh, he he is also, uh, I would say, also in that movie, is a, a Cheers alum, right? Norm is in, is in House. So that didn't feel quite as disorienting because I thought— I can never remember because, like, I know that George Wendt is in one of the House
1: movies. He's in House— and John Ratzenberger's in the other Ratzenberger's in part two, which right.
0: when he shows up in part two, you think, "Oh, I get it." We're, this is going to be a theme now? We're going to do this again. But uh, but I will say, like, when you know, for me as a kid, I, to be fair, I think George Wendt is, uh, in my mind, a much more recognizable figure than Richard Mull. And I'm not that's no disrespect, to Richard Mull. I just I know that now as an adult. As a kid, these were sitcom men whose names yes, I did not know. Absolutely. So they're both in House. Of course they are. It, again, to young me, House was a quality Hollywood film, and I did not know that it was not that. But the first time I saw Dungeon Master, I, going in, I was like, what is this thing? This is not a big time this – this is certainly no House, right? And then there's my man, Bull. And then even more so, when I finally saw Evil Speak, and he's the, the old cult guy <laughs> in Evil Speak – Stuff like that blew me away because i I associated him so much with this show and and I get the feeling I'm no TV expert I get the feeling that maybe Night court was not as important to so many people's <laughs> childhood as it was to me but I watched every episode of that goddamn show I I you know I I, I, I paid attention to many of these actors long after I should have because of their involvement in Night court
1: yeah. Absolutely. I, I, speaking of Richard Moll, I also think of Metal Storm, the destruction of Jared Sin. I think a lot sure, of those child sure. bandish movies from that time period. He pops up in, but I mean, I think a lot of these actors were looking for like sitcom gigs.
0: <laughs> I mean, I guess the thing here is, Doug is is a reminder that sometimes, I, I, this isn't true. I, I'm assuming a lot of our audience are film fans. And film fans, they they notice an actor, and then inevitably they end up on the internet looking at what that actor has done. It's sure. It's one of our habits that we do, that I'm sure a lot of people do. But before I was into that, I would get these surprises sometimes where I'm like, I associate you with something that is not this. Yeah. And now you're doing this thing, and I don't know what to make of it. And I bet any Star Trek fan who caught this movie randomly on Cinemax, which is, I'm, I'm assuming, the only place they would have caught it, right? Unless they just, I don't know, wanted to buy a, uh, or uh, rent a random movie at WoW Video or something, and this was, like, the only option. But, um... I just wonder how many people's minds would have been blown who really associated him with one thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit more uh, about that. But regardless, I just wanted to find out, you know, it, what what your experience was with those sort of, sorts of surprises, uh, because I, I'll, I'll be honest with you and with our audience. I yelled out loud when he showed up on there. I just <laughs> was like, "I'll tell you, Liam, I, I
1: didn't really, uh, um, I wasn't really anticipating how excited you would be to see George Takei in this movie." You know, actors do appear in just lots of stuff; that's kind of their deal. And I mean, I mean it's first funny because like, you say that you name... but that isn't true of all actors. Obviously. I know, I know, but it's that's kind of the funny thing about your example though of Richard Mole, which is that he did have a fairly productive career before he was on Night Court, and then afterwards it pretty much is just a lot of voice work. I can't think of any, right. I mean, he's done, he did more live action roles afterwards, but I, I, none kind of spring to mind. And I think that that's a trajectory that's kind of similar to a lot of actors where right. if they get that kind of quote unquote dream gig, right, like a regular gig, like a sitcom or something like that, then, then it's like, well, I'm going to ride this out. And, but then you also become pigeonholed. It's hard to think of him as not this kind of tall, bald, dumb guy. And that's not the kind of roles he played at all before he was in that sitcom.
0: Well, but I think, you know, this is a question I was going to have for you, is that, you know, do we think this is one of the weirdest things on, on uh, George Takai's oh. IMDb? Because, I you know... This is 1993, right? He's done a number of Star Trek movies at this point. The, mm-hmm. the The convention circuit has to be paying some of his bills. And he's done other things that I don't find surprising. Like if he shows up on TV in all manner of random roles or he does voiceovers, which he does a good deal too, none of that is surprising. There's something about the nature of this specific kind of uh, Filipino direct-to-video action film that I just don't associate him with, and that's why I was kind of surprised by, whereas there are plenty of other character actors that if they showed up, I'd be like, oh, there he is. That's where where I expect to see him. You know what I mean? I I wonder if it's because
1: this would have been right after the final original cast Star Trek movie, The Undiscovered Country in 1991, and it's just like, well, now I'm you know, he's in his late fifties, I think at this point, I still have a lot of career left to go. I want to still be an actor and everyone sees me as Sulu. So I need to do stuff. I need to work
0: yeah, yeah. so people
1: can see me as something else. And I don't know if he necessarily ever really broke out of that until maybe in the last five to seven years where, because of social media and because he became visible, you know, I think maybe it, it was a it was over a period of time. I think he was big on Howard Stern and stuff like that. And but like him coming out and him becoming the social media presence, I think that is what it took to break away from it. But uh, when you're trying in the immediate aftermath of it, maybe it's just you take the roles that are different sure. from Sulu.
0: Yeah, and I and I don't want anyone to hear me saying he shouldn't be in this movie. It just was. And I'll put it in the most positive way possible as well. It was a pleasant thing because the only other familiar face in the movie is Vic Diaz, which is why we're watching the film. (laughs) Um, And so to have someone else, anyone else show up that I'm like, oh, there's somebody I know. And not only that, have them be good in it was really great. But we'll get into that after the break as we dive in and talk about Live by the Fist. We'll be right back. I had always suspected it was you. You should not have broken the rules. What are you going to do about it, Warden? Kill me? By Paris? I am not going to kill you, up. Quite to the contrary, in fact. Because of your anonymous letter. The human rights people are coming tomorrow to investigate. And I'll tell them to talk to you. (laughs) Even you can't be that stupid. What are you up to, Acosta? I am simply confident that you will return to me my account book. And you will tell them That all your letters are nothing but malicious lies. (laughs) Maybe you are. That's stupid. A man is unjustly convicted of a brutal crime. In prison, he must fight for survival, justice, and freedom. It's 1993's Live by the Fist, directed by our man, Sirio H. Santiago. We've talked about him. We've covered a bunch of his stuff. We'll probably have to cover more stuff because, you know, he was the man in the Philippines. He, that's just it. He was the man, and that's that's how it's going to be. Um, uh, written by Charles Philip Moore, uh, writer, director of 1990's Demon Wind, which people will probably know because in one brief scene, uh, uh, Lou Diamond Phillips plays a demon. That's the most famous <laughs> thing about Demon Wind. And he didn't want to do it, but they talked him into it. And uh, and, and his, his credit in the film was like, like Phil Ruby or something, like something that's like, oh, I know who that is, you know what I mean? <laughs> Anyways, uh, sorry, I got distracted by that. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, <laughs> uh, Wrote and directed 1992's Black Belt with Don the Dragon Wilson. Wrote the 1995 remake of Not of This Earth for Terrence Winkless, uh, the director of Bloodfist and former member of The Banana Splits. Uh, Doug. I don't know anything about the banana splits. Is that weird that I don't know a single thing? Because it seems like a cultural thing people care about. Well, the only weird thing about it is the fact that we've
1: already discussed the banana splits and Terrence Wickless and Bloodfist previously on this very podcast. And yeah. including his his involvement with the banana splits and our uh, discovery of it and our excitement about that discovery.
0: Well, I remember at the time we talked about this thing of like remaking movies over and over again that have the same plots and things like that. But I, I just, you know, coming back to it this time, I thought this has come up a number of times on this podcast and in my life because recently there was that uh, horror banana splits, right? Where it was like- Yeah, yeah, were, that's right. Were, mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, it's so weird. I guess this has cultural value. I don't know shit about it.
1: I It, it really does. Um, uh, it, it is in a very interesting place in pop culture because I didn't grow up in the 70s, right? I grew up in the 80s. So yeah, I- I had no. I never was ex, uh, exposed to the Banana Splits. It wasn't on reruns. I nope. didn't really learn about it probably until the nineteen nineties. My only um, experience directly with it is the theme song of it, uh, because mostly because of the Dickies cover. To be totally honest with you. Um,
0: oh yeah, so, sure.
1: You know, so so the theme song is something I'm intimately familiar with, but um, but in ter- I don't think I mean, I've certainly never sat down and watched a full episode of the Banana Splits. I just know the costumes and I know the theme song. Hmm.
0: Hmm. Uh an interesting note here, Live by the Fist is a straight up remake of 1991's Bloodfist 3, speaking of Bloodfist, yeah. forced to fight. Uh literally read, I want you to read the plot summary a of this year one. before. No, this is I was about to do that. Yeah. Jimmy Boland is a man unjustly accused of a brutal crime. Within the prison, he must fight for survival, freedom and justice. Now, I want to be clear about this. They ended with justice instead of freedom. So <laughs> yeah. it's a different movie. <laughs> What the fuck!
1: Oh my god! I, I don't. It's once. I mean, this is once again a Roger Corman produced movie, the one that sure, we're talking about yes. today, "Live by the Fist," who yes. also produced "Blood Fist," and it's just like, well, this plot's good enough. Now, strangely, the writing credit on this film is different from the writing credit on "Blood Fist" three, and the people who were credited with the "Blood Fist" three
0: uh, script get no credit at all live by the fist so <laughs> I mean they were just like look Charles Philip Moore gets more cred than you so we're not gonna we're not gonna admit that he just stole this idea from you but this does speak to
1: exactly what you brought up in the first segment and I held this back intentionally which okay. is that in the film that we're about to talk about George Takei plays this role of kind of a mentor to our lead character right sure. I mean he, yeah. he's resistant at first but becomes one that character in Blood Fist
0: 3, is played by Richard Roundtree, Shaft himself. Oh, I did not know that. I've never seen mm. Blood Fist 3. Oh, man. Is Vic Diaz in it? No. Unfortunately, I guess I'm never going to no. see it then. I'm <laughs> I just, never, just never fucking going to see it. Uh, this movie stars Jerry Trimble, uh, George Takei, as we've discussed uh, exhaustingly, uh, Ted Markland, Laura Albert, and, of course, the man himself, vic diaz uh before we get into any other details about this and 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 you give us a detailed comparison between it and mm-hmm. blood fist 3 a movie i know that you love and watch religiously i just want to know what do you think of this movie i have never seen blood fist
1: 3 and i certainly didn't mean to give the <laughs> I'm uh, impression doug I, I was had. pulling a doug um, and
0: setting you up for failure
1: yeah, well, I'm being honest to try to, to uh, deflect from that failure. I will say of this film, it is not very good. It is extremely poorly made. And uh, i it's hard to tell if that is for budgetary reasons. Um, if it's, I mean, the, the, the very fact that the movie is like 74 minutes long, it's really, really short. But it also feels like it kind of plods along at the same time. And it's not that it's overstuffed, and it's not that it's understuffed in terms of plot. It feels like it's supposed. It is exactly what it is supposed to be, right? A guy gets. Um, uh, he tries to stop a crime from taking place, a woman from getting raped. Uh, the people who were involved in that blame the incident on him instead. He gets sent to jail in this foreign prison, and then he has to survive, even though everyone is out to get him, including this evil warden. He befriends uh, this this kind of genteel. Japanese man played by George Takei, who also is trying to bring in people from the UN or a human rights organization to try to get these people out of the prison. And then, you know, everything kind of works itself out from there. So in terms of the plot, it's, it's, it seems like it's a reliable structure, which is probably why they copied it from Blood Fist 3. But this movie, there's a few things that are really working against it. One is that it appears that just about everybody's voice has been post-dubbed. And there's a few exceptions to that, and it doesn't seem like it's consistent throughout the whole movie, but for whatever reason, most of the performances are dubbed, and that is already a knock against these these actors, some of which are not the greatest actors in the first place, uh, and some of which who, now they're not great actors, and their mouths are not matching the words that they're saying. So it can be a little distracting when you're watching it. Oddly enough, the best thing about this movie uh, is the action, which is not terrible. I mean, some particularly Agreed. Jerry Trimble, who, uh, for those who don't know Jerry Trimble, he is uh, a world. He was a former world kickboxing champion and stunt man. Still does a lot of stunt work. He appeared in the Michael Mann film Heat. He, he is now a youth motivational speaker. Liam and he moved. He's married to Amy Dolans, who, for people who don't who, who know that, the daughter of Mickey Dolans. But also he moved to Canada and became a uh, a Canadian citizen recently, Liam. So I have a lot of affection for Mr. Jerry Trimble. In fact, when I found that out, I immediately followed him on Twitter with the hopes that he'd follow me back so I could ask him some questions about Live by the Fist. I wonder if he has any memories of it. But he is really great at kicking people. Like, um really impressive in terms and you can tell he's doing it all too. I mean, he's obviously really threw himself into it. And I also want to say the first fight in this movie that takes place in this kind of
0: um yes. warehouse yeah.
1: is is super impressive. Like they're breaking a bunch of stuff. It's it's a, it's yep. a lot of fun to watch and I was set up to think that most of the action would be that inventive. It really isn't. And it kind of gets worse as the movie goes along. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I mean, I think uh, the thing that I really will take away from this movie is that it's just it just plods, and it does not have a very satisfying ending. No. So, I mean, it, it goes exactly where you, where you think. I mean, eventually, and this should not be much of a spoiler to anybody, George Takei is mortally wounded, and the they try to to set up Jerry Trimble's character, John Merrill, as being involved in it. He then uh, has to uh, engage with the human rights people directly, and then he gets off the island. And who knows what happens next? <laughs> Do they? We know that they burn down the prison, but all the prisoners are still there. I mean, I guess we'll just hope that everything works out in the end. Pretty poor. Actually, I sometimes worry that when I have a memory of these early 90s, low-budget action movies, that they're all this poor and that I just don't remember how poor they were because I was watching them on VHS and my expectations were low. But this feels like it's of a lower quality than even right. a lot of those movies of the time period. Though I have to say, very comparable to the quality of a Blood Fist, the first one.
0: Yeah, I would say that there's a lot of DNA between this and Blood Fist. Um, we'll get into some of that in a second. I do want to say, you know, this is to me the kind of... Uh, not, I don't want to say perfect, because that implies good, but it is the essential, you know. W- uh, let's call it white mullet kung fu movie. Sure. You know, like a, a strong white man is somewhere in Asia. He knows martial arts. He's put in danger, because of course he is, and he must fight his way out of every situation. There is no scenario in this movie that doesn't eventually require his spin kicks. You know? Um, <laughs> he's going to give him whether they require it or not. <laughs> right. And the issue here, usually... Is that a lot of these movies live or die based upon the mullet? Who is the man with the mullet doing the spin kicking? You Mm -hmm. know, who is that person? Because they're going to sell the movie. Well, here's what's fucked about this movie to me, Doug. Mm -hmm. Jerry Trimble's pretty goddamn good. He's not like a huge, compelling actor. He probably smolders a little more than is necessary. You know, there's a few scenes where he's just mad, and you're like, What are you even fucking mad about right now, man? But I mean, like, he has a right out. to be mad. He's been. It is evicted. excessive, Doug. Everyone is on the same prison island. No one is as mad as he is, all right? <laughs> That's fair. So, fair enough, some people are, are are downright happy to be. Yeah, there. exactly, exactly. So, my feeling is it's he's not the greatest actor, but we've seen enough of these movies to feel like he's still heads and shoulders against a lot of other dudes who tried to parlay kicking into being an actor. I he's think he's more impressive than Don the Dragon Wilson was in Bloodfist. Way Blood Fist, more yeah. fucking way if we were judging or ju- firecracker. <laughs> if we were oh god damn it. If we were judging <laughs> just by the martial arts, I might say mm-hmm. that that this movie is is heads and heads above, heads and shoulders above a movie like Bloodfist but for whatever reason the rest of the movie doesn't work so like i would have put forward prior a theory these movies work entirely based upon the kicking prowess of our white man uh because too often it's a white man you know mm-hmm. at, at this period especially sure. if it's like lost in asia uh this is an example that maybe that's not the case because he's doing the kicking he's doing the smoldering he's really trying to take what is painful dialogue and make it something that you can be around and none of it works Doug the movie has no energy (laughs) I I will say I not only is I think that first fight sequence is good I think it's really good and it made me think this was going to be a fun movie yeah and no matter how many more scenes of violence or over the top ridiculousness there is in the rest of the film, it just never gets that energy back. It is a slog. It is a burden. I <laughs> feel like I of- carried this movie across the yeah, fucking finish line. Yeah, I mean, I, I
1: feel the same way about it. I think part of it is that it's a very repetitive movie, right? Like, oh an action my God. Scene will happen because he'll get jumped by some guys, he'll fight them, then one of the guards will come up and they'll take him away and then he'll get punished. And that
0: happens like four times in the movie. I mean, there's one important plot point, which is he finds the journal of the, the money, the yeah. ledger of the money that Vic Diaz is as the warden has been stealing. He finds it in the hot box, you know, the yes. torture box, basically, which uh, BT dubs. I want to look there first. Who the fuck does? Oh, one of the prisoners who we've been torturing hid something. Well, maybe the box that we keep him in for 24 hours suffering, we should check the box. Hey, did we check the torture box where he was for 48 hours? Well, it was under the box. I mean, you know, you oh, could have Come on. <laughs> fuck, fuck you. Uh, but, but regardless, let's put that aside. That doesn't even matter, really. What matters is, yes, again and again, it follows the same structure. Uh, there's some plot movement, you know, he becomes better friends with the uh, uh, George Takei character of Uncle Coronado. There's some, like, weird racial politics where he has to convince the Asians, which, by the way, we're supposed to believe that all of the Asians are one group in the yes. film. We It's the Asians versus the white folks. And, like... No one believes that, right? Like, like I, I guess it's 1993, and people are less knowledgeable. But I'll just let you know if there is a prison island off the Philippines where they're sending a bunch of folks. Uh, there, it's not like. All the Asians and all the white people against each other. That's not how it breaks down. Those folks are not getting along. That's not that's not a real thing. But in the film, he has to convince everyone that I guess because every white man on the island is also like a legit white supremacist with Nazi tattoos, Mm -hmm. that he's not one of those guys. But then also the white supremacists want to kill him because they know he's not one of those guys. Yeah, It, it should be so. Describing it out loud, Doug. It should be tense. There's no fucking tension in the mill in the film yeah. at any. Really, the only part where you start to wonder what's going to happen for me, at least, is at the end when the 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 human rights people show up because I think they might all catch a bullet and he just has to swim off the island. I don't know what's going to sure. happen. Uh, but even then, it didn't. That didn't add any excitement to it. It just felt kind of dead. Uh, that being said, as you indicated before, and I said as well. I did feel a certain amount of joy at seeing uh, George... George Takei in this, I, I wanted to ask you, Doug, mm-hmm. how did you feel, was he sort of the star draw of the film? Did he add something to the film? Was this like a, like a oh man, it's so great that he was here, that he was able to lend something to what was going on? And why weren't you as surprised as I was? I guess because you read it on IMDb. I yeah, I, I read it on
1: IMDb. I mean, it, again, it's not like George Takei appears in a lot of action films, so it's still a right. bit of a surprise. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also think that, yeah, he, maybe, he, I do think he is the name in this movie. Right, Jerry that's Trimble what I was, was wondering, yeah. Because the original poster of it has, you know, featuring Star Trek's George Takei is right there on the poster. So I mean, that they knew that some people were going to seek out this movie specifically because he's in it. And I don't think you could say that about any other performer in the entire film, including Jerry Trimble, who again was a well-respected kickboxer, but I mean, it, not a name, right? It never became a name. Uh, and even like a supporting player like Ted Markland, who plays one of the white prisoners who is a white supremacist? He's kind of the leader of the white prisoners. Who's also has a Nazi tattoo. He's like a, a, a semi-recognizable um, character actor, but, but I mean, no, he I, sucked in this movie. Doug, I think he his performance more than most
0: suffered from the dubbing in the yeah, film. yeah uh, it was but, awkward.
1: But also, that's a really shitty role he has to play as well, right? No, lots
0: of people could take it and chew yeah, oh, yeah. the scenery oh, and make it their own.
1: Oh, I don't mean that. I just mean that he's playing such a despicable character where, he, sure. where he's introduced, you know, calling, well, using a lot of racial slurs and shit like that. So, I mean, but but yeah. And also, that, like I, uh, I, I think I was telling you this before we started recording. I was really worried. This is probably my most engaged part in regards to Live by the Fist. I was really worried that eventually him and Jerry Trimble's character, there was going to be like an about face where they become friends. And then we're like supposed to think, oh, he's a white supremacist, but he's not such a bad guy. Thankfully, they don't go in that direction. They make him a piece of shit who absolutely is going to sell out everybody, including Jerry Trimble, even even decides to work with the warden at one point. So um, yeah, I mean, but George Takei, I think is... I mean, maybe delightful is too strong of a word, but he's giving a serious performance in this film and is meant to be taken seriously. And in a movie where everything is sort of silly for a variety of reasons, whether it be the low budget, whether it be the bad script, whether it be the low production values, I think he comes off with more dignity than anybody else.
0: I think that's true. I think he 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 adds uh, gravitas But he's also the only character Who's written that way You yeah. know what I mean Like everyone else Just exists to get mad And try to kill each other That's true And he's That's there true. to be like The one I mean I guess you could say The human rights people Are somewhat rational I'll But they're like an outdoor Oh the, yeah
1: I hate to say it But Laura Albert Who who I mean She's a, a very well respected Stunt woman And had appeared in a lot of movies Up to this point She's awful in this But I mean she's only in like Three scenes in the whole
0: fucking thing But it's noticeable It's a noticeably yeah. bad Yeah 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 Um I wanted to ask, you know, this is very much that uh that kind of film. I don't, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's a genre, but it's part of a pattern of, sure. you mm-hmm. know, a relatable white character lost in Asia doing kung fu whatever whatever. But I also wonder and I wanted to get your take on this, do we feel like the Merrill character is in some way like a white savior, you know, in the sense of like he he's different than all the other white people because he's not racist mm. and he's also just like essentially noble or, uh, I don't know, heroic in some way? Is this like a white savior movie? I will say, it's something we talked about a little bit with Blood Fist, right? About
1: kind of a stranger coming to an Asian country. And I mean, using the white savior name is a little problematic when it comes to that particular movie because Don the Dragon Wilson, I think, Right, exactly, exactly. uh, But in this case, it's a little difficult to say because for one thing, Meryl is very disengaged from the politics of the... Prison. He doesn't want to be involved in it. He's kind of forced into that into that scenario, and the only reason he's forced into it is that he shows the barest amount of kindness to to some people. Right. right. It's right. not It's not like he's like a. He's not like a Schwarzenegger or Stallone as good guy in the in the sense that he is an ex Navy SEAL. That's something we're told at the very beginning, and it's not he wants to do good or even that he wants to combat bad. It's just that if he sees serious injustice, he's gonna step in. Like that's as far as he'll really go with it. And like there's a part where um, w- like a, one of the smaller prisoners, he has like his tray of food and one of the asshole prisoners takes his tray of food. And so John Merrill who's just eating is like, I'm not hungry anyway. And he just gives him his food, right? The smallest amount of kindness that c- creates a connection between him and that other character. It's not that he's like a Superman good guy. It's just that he's willing to step up just that little bit. That said, he does become the center of the final act of the movie where he basically the, the like, I wonder how like the human rights tribunal or whatever the fuck it is, or like the the, the group that they sent. Wh- how are they gonna explain any of this? Like, Vic Diaz's character kills a number of them, right? They're not right. coming back. <laughs> is that not going to raise a few red flags? You get this impression right from the beginning that because all of these letters have come from the, prisoner, uh, the prison, they've been written by George Takei, the doctor of the prison has been smuggling them out, and they're they're going to these um, the, this organization that is trying to help them, and it apparently give a lot of detail about the horrible conditions of this prison. It, it kind of feels, even from the beginning, that Vic Diaz's Warden Acosta knows that they're fucked that there's almost no way out of this like even this his plan which is to bring these human rights people and basically force george takei to say that he made up all the stories seems like kind of a weak plan seems like it's not really gonna work Uh, so it there is kind of an inevitability to everything that takes place in the movie um but i do think that i do think the intention is what you're saying yeah that 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 you know it's important that John Merrill is a white guy and that he is the one that comes out on top. I do think there's an extra wrinkle because they did put a bunch of white supremacists in here as well uh-huh, to, uh-huh. to really separate him from right, other him exactly. from everyone else. Yeah yeah yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I also want to point out too, in case people think that this is a little uh, – I don't know. Like a like a movie about the rights of prisoners or something that might actually be compelling emotionally. <laughs> it's important to remember that they they're only going to get the warden because he's been stealing money. That's the yeah. importance of the ledger. That it doesn't matter if they can prove he's been abusing these prisoners. No one gives a fuck about that. It's yeah, they that he's been how many healing money. Died. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the it's the theft that's going to get him in trouble. Um in that sense, Doug, this is very much part of another tradition which is the Island prison movie, which there yes. are a bunch. I, I say island prison. It could be anywhere in the jungle or the desert. But there's this whole prison movie genre. And I was just curious, Doug, what is your favorite of these kind of movies? Oh, boy. It's really hard
1: to say. I mean, I feel like they come out of the tradition of the POW movies. Of right? like the yes, American, yes. Like post-World War II POW movies. And, with, and it's hard to think of them in that tradition because a lot of the tropes are – very different. And I also think that there's really two versions of the sort of modern prison movie, which is that there's the women in prison style movie, which tends to be very kind of nudity and sex based and exploitative. And then there's the men one that's very much based on action and torture. Uh, and they do cross over a lot. And we've, we've even talked about one on this very show uh, previously. And in fact, I think that Ciro Santiago directed... KT2 where yep. Vic Diaz basically plays the exact same role in that that he plays in this movie so I mean it's it's a little hard to say to be totally honest I mean even going back to like Ilsa She-Wolf of the SS which is another variation on it it's not my favorite kind of genre mostly because it feels very predictable sure um but also it's the kind of exploitative and i think i talked about that on the big bird cage episode that we did yeah uh that that it's just it's the kind of exploitative that feels a little icky to me and that one felt a little strange even on top of that because there's like a political element that's in there as well um i i do if i have a preference in terms of direction it's probably more towards this kind of movie which doesn't seem like it's taking it too Seriously, right? Like you said, this isn't a movie about the human rights violations. It's not really about the conditions of the prison. It's just using those as tropes to build an action movie around. Um, That said, uh, of all of them, the one that springs to mind is probably, and uh, hopefully this isn't too embarrassing, the Stuart Gordon movie Fortress. Which is
0: sure, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Which is like a a sci-fi variation on the person goes to isolated prison that you can't possibly escape from. But that one has so many great supporting actors, and I love the sci-fi element and a lot of that one's a lot more inventive than something like that. And that one, you know, leans into its uh, action in a little bit more of a heightened Mm. way.
0: Mm. I think I'm a little less uh, ached out than I should be about women in prison movies. Like there's sure. just something about them that I also think is fun until they're not. And then when they're not, it just is a matter of like the level of detachment I can maintain while watching it. Right. Um when it comes to the other prison movies, you know, I'm actually of a mixed bag. I, I don't have a lot that I love. If I was going to choose, I might say Alien Three. Ooh, actually. interesting.
1: That's an interesting one.
0: Uh but but if I was going more of a classic, it's it's hard to say um, because some of the movies that popped in my head first were the more POW movies, so right. I don't know. May I, I might do a, I might create my own series to actually think about this. Of like, uh, you know, and, and it, but it's it's hard too because this is not. This is not an escape from prison movie. That's like what I was way, just gonna say. You know? I think
1: I, I like escape uh, prison escape movies way more than I yeah. Like I, I
0: think movies. I agree. I think I agree. Like you know, there's a few of those that I, I really love. So I don't know. This is something to think about. I might actually try doing a series on this or something. So anyways, let's sure. let's keep going here. The most important question. This is why people <laughs> listen to the podcast. Doug Vic Diaz is. Did you know Vic Diaz is in this movie? The man Vic Diaz. He's in this movie. What did you think of his performance? <laughs> I mean, he's playing a Vic Diaz role, that's
1: for sure. I mean, it it feels almost at this point that he's playing this role because this role exists and because Vic Diaz plays these kinds of roles. Uh, I mean, I think he probably played a warden a half dozen times in his career um, and in in a very similar kind of role where he is evil, that he's a little bit joyfully evil. And, uh, And in that sense, I think he does a really good job. One of the troubles of this movie is, I've already mentioned that most of the characters... Uh, it feels like the audio was post-dubbed. Vic Diaz doesn't seem to be, which means that sometimes his audio is hard to understand, though it's obviously his real voice, and he's giving a very, you know, boisterous and cartoonish in some way performance. I mean, this is, like, when you have a podcast about Vic Diaz, you kind of got to love roles like this because those are the roles that he's most well-known for, and I think he does a really good job. I mean, there's no doubt at all about how evil he is, but... Um, and he, I do kind of wish he got more of a comeuppance um, and some, maybe more violent comeuppance than we actually see in the film. But, uh, but you know, I think he's fun as a, kind of like a mustache twirling villain. He did look old, that's for sure. Um, but that's the thing. I mean, we started, we have watched Vic Diaz movies going back to the 1950s and this is the early 90s. We are kind of already moving towards the end of his career here.
0: Yeah, I will say the the only negative thing for me when it comes to Vic Diaz in this movie is that he doesn't look great. You know, yeah. like he's looking older and, you know, it's it makes me a little sad in that sense. But he's doing the thing here. You know, he's doing the Vic <laughs> Diaz thing and I love it. I It is, other than George, it really is, there's three things about this movie that are enjoyable. Vic Diaz's performance, George Takai's performance, and then specifically Trimble's fighting. When yes. Trimble is acting, sometimes it's okay, sometimes it's not. But when he's fighting, he's really good. Even if sometimes the people he's fighting seem to be half-assing it a little bit. Honestly, some of the extras he beats up don't look like they're really committed to looking like they got beat up. But that's, yeah. you know, we've spent enough time on the negatives of this movie. I don't think, again, this is one of the Vic Diaz movies we can say, you're missing out on a hidden gem, go find it. <laughs> but I will, say, I will say, I have met people who are... 90s action obsessive types, yes. mm-hmm. and there's still a chance you might have missed this. If you are that person, I think this is an interesting enough movie to check out. Um, there's a, there's a few reviews on Letterbox that that are that give this like
1: three and a half stars. That to me seems extremely generous, but there are like you said, there are people who really love. This era, right, in particular, right. of action and and you know it does provide. There's lots of action in the movie, and there's actually a good amount of Vic Diaz as well. So, I mean, I have no complaints after watching it. It just feels like it was a little rougher around the edges than I was expecting.
0: I agree, Doug. What are we covering on the next episode of this very podcast?
1: It is a film I've never heard of before. Uh, it's from 1973, directed by Basil Bradbury and Neil Yarima or Yarima. It is. A Taste of Hell, uh, featuring the great William Smith, who just recently passed away, and John Garwood, uh, the uh, tagline here says, or I guess it's a, the, the summary says, they fought savagely for love of their country, A Taste of Hell, an explosive war epic depicting the heroic stand for patriotism from the hills down to the devastated countryside. I have no idea what to expect with this, Liam, but on the next episode of uh, Whatever Happened to Vic Diaz, we're going to be watching A Taste of Hell.
0: Man, I really think this might be a fucked up movie, and I'm kind of interested <laughs> to see what it's going to be. Uh, well, you know, thank you to everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Doug, if they want to know more about this podcast, about uh, some of our podcasting cohorts, where can they find uh, all that information?
1: Well, you can always find the latest episode of Cinema Smorgasbord over at CinePunks.com which also has a lot of other wonderful great podcasts, including the flagship CinePunks podcast, as well as a lot of great writing. You can check that out on all social media under the, under the name of CinePunks. But if you want to check out our entire archive of episodes, or if you want to subscribe or leave us feedback, go over to CinemaSmorgasbord.com You can check out our, our other podcasts devoted to such diverse topics as Jackie Chan, as Carol Kane, as Dick Miller and including the recently um, uh, we released an episode of Jodorowsky, our Alejandro Jodorowsky podcast which has been very well received uh, you can of course uh, uh, join us on social media with Cinema Smorgasburg as well on Twitter at Cinema Smorg. that's S-M-O-R-G or just, just do a search for Cinema Smorgasbord on Facebook or at the very least you can follow both Liam and myself on Twitter Liam at Liam Rules, that's with the R U L Z. or you can follow me on there at Doug underscore Tilly, that's T-I-L-L E-Y
0: Thanks, Doug. And thank you, dear (laughs) listener. We appreciate having your time. We hope you'll join us back here next time as we further explore the depths of the career of one Mr. Vic Diaz. Have a good night. Good night.
1: Out in the city, you gotta watch your step They don't know who you are They ain't heard about your rep Well, they won't fight fair They'll hit with all their might You're trying to walk away But sometimes
0: you've got to fight Sometimes you've got to fight
1: we or let her scream and walk
0: out. You got to tell her like it is to keep your dreams in sight if you want to keep her close boy. Sometimes